0: daily news and analysis we keep you informed and inspired
1: this is world today
2: hello and welcome to world today i'm joe coming up china has refuted false accusations in the u.s report on china's wto compliance we we'll take a deeper look at china's economic model and trade practices Negotiations on a potential ceasefire between Israel and Hamas will continue in Qatar and Egypt. What are the biggest obstacles to reach a final agreement? And what are the reasons behind the doctor's strike in South Korea that has created chaos in hospitals? China has voiced firm opposition to a U.S. report that denies China's contribution to the World Trade Organization and Global Economy. The Office of the United States Trade Representative released its 2023 report to Congress on China's WTO compliance. The Chinese Commerce Ministry says the report fully exposes the unilateralism and bullying of the U.S. side. The ministry said China has always firmly supported the multilateral trading system, genuinely practiced multilateralism, and earnestly fulfilled its WTO commitments. For more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. The U.S. report characterizes China's economic system as state-directed and non-market. However, we know that China has undergone significant economic reforms since joining the WTO. So can you help us understand China's economic model and trade practices?
3: Well, the Chinese model is uh, still the market-oriented economy under the socialist and Chinese characteristics so therefore China is there to reinvent the wheel for its own economic growth and uh, shared prosperity via the promotion of uh, the market and uh, also that uh, the Chinese government is there to play a more effective role in serving the uh, objective So therefore, the uh, market is still in the mainstream and therefore we are still in the compliance with WTO rules because WTO does not really require uh, any type of uh, institutions that are are there uh, different to uh, many other of the uh, other members. As long as the market players are playing with the WTO rules, And it is totally acceptable.
2: Okay. And the U.S. has also accused China of causing global overcapacity in certain industries. How do you look at these allegations?
3: China is really uh, creating a lot of uh, 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 global capacities, but uh, that is pretty much needed by the global market. And also that is driven by Chinese comparative advantage in its industrial cluster. And the fact that China becomes the manufacturing house And uh, uh, it is really uh, pretty much supported by multinational companies who invest in China. Look at the fact that China has nearly uh, 700,000 foreign companies investing in China, and many of them are engaged in contract manufacturing businesses, which means that they bring uh, raw materials and then uh, using the Chinese uh, demographic dividend to uh, make the finished goods to supply to the whole world. And also that uh, the world is really benefiting from it because uh, you see that uh, not many uh, American companies or European companies are making shoes or garments or uh, any other type of electronic gauges anymore. And therefore, they enjoy blue sky. And uh, uh, China is really actually paying the burden of uh, exploiting its own natural resources, exploiting its uh, own the uh, liberal forces. So this is really, uh, we can say, uh, it is pretty much in conformity with the competitive landscape uh, where each country can really focus on what they can do best. So this is really the realistic situation the world is put into through uh, market economy that is at work uh, with the rest of the world.
2: (laughs) Well, can you elaborate on some of the significant achievements or reforms that China has made in fulfilling its WTO commitments since joining the organization?
3: Well, there is a whole lot of uh, uh, reforms China has made to streamline its own domestic policies and legislations to get into compliance. As a matter of fact, that in one year when China was uh, in accession with WTO in 2001, and China wholesaled the uh, overhaul the nearly 1000 the uh, the, uh, 1, 000, the, uh, uh the, well uh, type of acts uh, or legislations uh that are not really in conformity and the fact also china has substantially reduced the tariff even below its uh, the uh the commitment that is already made and so now uh you know roughly seven percent of tariff is something that i uh, a developing country can hardly offer. And uh, also China has uh, uh, the time and again revised its own uh, policies to uh, bring about more market entry for foreign businesses and also that, uh, the fact that uh, all the Chinese companies are entitled to get, engage in global trade, in, uh, engage in global drug ventures. Uh, are really significant, not only to boost the Chinese economy and also to help uh, China to uh, work with the rest of the world uh, in a more competitive marketplace. And uh, another one is that China has stepped up the uh, protection of intellectual property rights, and uh, that is pretty much in line with the uh, World Intellectual Property Organizations, So China has joined a number of many other global treaties uh, that is also very much in line with the WTO requirement. So the fact that uh, uh, China has been uh, growing as the largest exporter of the world shows that uh, Chinese made uh, can be uh, welcomed uh, by many of our trading partners.
2: Well, China's commerce ministry has criticized the U.S. for its trade policies, saying the U.S. has implemented unilateral trade bullying and formulated discriminatory industrial policies, which disrupted global and industrial supply chains. How do you look at this?
3: Well, as a matter matter of fact, many major economies are doing that. So uh, uh, whether it's going to really harm other competition, so that's the uh, matter that the WTO will have to look into, so whether it is really a discriminative practices, and the US is really stepping up more of the discriminative practices, and they try to circumvent the WTO rules by uh, imposing the uh, their restrictions and the sanctions over other countries based on their own 301 uh, clauses of their Trade Act, and uh, now if if you see that a uh, the U.S., the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, their CHIPS Act, uh, and their uh, 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 biological uh, support from the executive order of the White House, they are really uh, stepping up their subsidies, which is really distortive in nature. And now they come back to to blame other countries, inclusive of China, of uh, doing the same, even to a lesser uh, degree, so this is uh, uh, very much unfair, and this is again showing the U.S. is, is uh, showing its uh, hegemonistic uh, type of attitude towards the global trading partners. And so, uh, fortunately, WTO as a multilateral uh, trade uh, framework, uh, you know, the particularly the appellate body, at least before it's being uh, paralyzed by the United States, it's uh, there to the uh, uh, eliminate a number of uh, the excuses that the uh, United States has been uh, doing, not only against China, but to many other trading members, including uh, the NAFTA members like uh, uh, the uh, Mexico. So this is really the real world that uh, the U.S. and China and many other members have to face squarely.
2: Well, as we know, WTO's 13th ministerial meeting is underway in the UAE. What issues do you think will be on top of the agenda? And given the current global climate of rising nationalism and protectionist policies, what specific steps can the WTO take to encourage greater cooperation and multilateral trade among member countries?
3: We see that the WTO has been uh, moving very slowly, and uh, part of which is because the U.S. is really dreading the feet and so, therefore, the appellate body uh, has been uh, in an impasse for many years. Um, but uh, the, uh, given the global environment, many other members are pushing for the progress that WTO will have to make. And right now, the world is facing a critical issue of climate change. So, therefore, uh, environmental consideration will be on the agenda of the 13th Ministerial Conference. And... Uh, then, because this is a very much a funny issue, because uh, many uh, countries are facing a dilemma between economic growth and the global trade versus their environmental quality, and so uh, a lot more will be discussed as how compromise can uh, can be achieved, and also WTO uh, supports the uh, common but differentiated responsibility between developed economies versus developing countries. So, therefore. Uh, What would be uh, the boundaries of uh, uh, those obligations and rights of each of the members? Because right now we have uh, uh, 164 members. They all have different uh, economic status and development stages. So it's going to be a a long uh, discussion and negotiation. But uh, uh, we are glad to see that uh, WTO is really making its right efforts.
2: Okay. And how does China view the role of the WTO in regulating and addressing trade disputes, especially regarding issues related to digital trade and emerging technologies, uh, particularly in light of the U.S.-China technological rivalry?
3: Well, China has always been embracing multilateralism and China uh, really attached great importance to the role WTO plays. And uh, uh, also China is also a great beneficiary over the global uh, multilateral trading platform. So China has every reason to defend the legitimacy of WTO, and uh, uh, China is there also to comply, uh, even if it is really uh, some of the cases are really against China uh, with WTO rules, and that's the fair play. So right now, uh, yes, when the world is entering into a digital economy and also uh Every country is engaged in green transition. So uh, China is there very much supportive of uh, uh, the WTO efforts to uh, further uh, step into these new frontier areas uh, in which China can also play a very important role, uh, both as its own industrial might and innovation drive, and also that uh, uh, China is eager to see that uh, the digital divide can be narrowed by Chinese efforts and also by the collective efforts of all the member countries. So when the U.S. is there to, to address the uh, restrictive practices that uh, they are playing, uh, not only with China, but also with m- many other countries, China uh, actually formally sued the United States in their uh, the, uh, restrictive practices in uh, imposing re- uh, embargo over the export of chips, And so hopefully the uh, WQ can really come up with a fair and just solution out of this.
2: That's Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. This is World Today, I'm Zhao Two rounds of talks to reach a truce in the Israel-Hamas conflict will be held in Qatar and Egypt. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S., Israel and several other Middle East countries have reached an understanding on the terms of a potential deal. The Gaza Strip is still under Israeli siege and bombardment, with the humanitarian situation deteriorating. For more, we are now joined by Zhang Chuchu, Associate Professor and Deputy Director at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Fudan University. Professor Zhang, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: What do you make of the progress being made in a potential ceasefire deal in Gaza? Uh, well, actually, important progress right now is that both sides
1: finally agree to make at least some kind of, like, compromise. So uh, the agreement seems to be that Hamas will make the first round of release of uh, 40 hostages in return for a ceasefire for six weeks. So um, that is um, what has currently been agreed so far. So it seems that at least both sides are tired of the prolonged war and they both face a lot of pressures. So for instance, Hamas has already lost lots of its caterers and members, whereas Israel has also faced huge economic loss. Also, um, it has faced pressures from the other side, um, not only the international um, community, uh, but also regional powers such as Egypt, because we know that Egypt is currently concerned with the influx of Palestinian refugees, so it has a lot of negotiations with Israel as well. And meanwhile, Israel knows that it is not easy to launch a major uh, military operation in Gaza. So I think uh, right now both sides want uh, a break.
2: Yeah, but we know that Hamas' rep- representatives actually did not attend the Paris meeting. Um, and also the group has insisted that, that any truce must include a long-term end to Israel's campaign in Gaza. So do you see any efforts or any progress in trying to bridge the gaps between Hamas and Israel? Well,
1: right. Um, in fact, uh, I think a big dispute between Israel and Hamas is that Hamas hopes to release hostages in return for a long term ceasefire, um, because it knows that this is the only card it has in its hand. Uh, whereas Israel only wants to carry out short term ceasefire for the release of hostages, and also it hopes to continue attacks after the hostages are released. So you see um, there is a big difference. Um, well, so far, some efforts have been made um, by the international community to persuade both sides. Um, Although the Algerian proposal at the United Nations Security Council has been um, vetoed by the United States, uh, it has shown the attitude of most of the United Nations actors. Um, And also, um, we have to keep in mind that regional powers have also made lots of efforts. Um, And I think um, we have to understand that right now, there's a thing still over effect. So it means that for the regional powers, such as Qatar or um, Egypt, they don't just want to act as mediators and exert an impact in the region, but also their own interests are closely related to what's going on in Gaza. And they are really concerned with this will respect.
2: Yes, and, and Israeli really Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has stated that any agreement would delay but not ultimately prevent an Israeli invasion of Rafa. How will this further complicate the negotiation process and, and the prospect of a potential ceasefire deal?
1: Well, yeah, I think, uh, first of all, we have, we have to note that um, the most important prerequisite for negotiations is neutral trust and sincerity among the negotiating parties. So things that, okay, I'm going to negotiate with you and at least I should have... Trust in you, right? But Hamas has the fear that hostage release cannot really bring a real truth. Uh, but as long as they release the hostages, um, in the end, they will have nothing in their hands, and Israel can go even further attacking it and seriously. So even after the short term ceasefire deal has been proved in practice, I'm concerned that maybe both sides are likely to prepare themselves for further so escalation of conflicts. Maybe neither side believe that this is an end, and that is what makes things more complicated and dangerous. And last time, we uh, remember that when there was a last um, ceasefire, just for several delays, uh, just for several days, there were lots of uncertainties at that time. There were lots of problems. And this time, the ceasefire is for six weeks, right? So it's a long term. They say like like middle long term ceasefire. So it is hard to tell if there might be interruptions when the ceasefire has been started.
2: Okay. And and what do you make of the role of the uh, you know, the mediating role of the US, Qatar and Egypt in these negotiations and, and what leverage do they actually have in influencing the outcome of these negotiations? Uh
1: well yeah, of course, um we should admit that the United States plays a big role and it is very important, uh, as it is currently that it is um supporter of Israel and if is, Let's say if the United States stops providing financial and military support for Israel, then obviously Netanyahu cannot continue attacking. But as Washington clearly sides with Israel, many Arab states and non-state actors have lost faith in it. Uh, And this is going to affect the mediation outcome because a lot of actors, they don't have trust in the United States. As for Qatar in Egypt, um, well, Qatar is a rising regional power, which has been striving to play the mediation role in the Middle East, uh, especially in recent years. And I think it has a big advantage, uh, which is that it, um, Qatar has networks with all parties involved in the conflict, so it can exert an impact. As for Egypt, it's interesting that Egypt is closely related to the conflict right now. And we see that Egypt is bordering Gaza and also it controls part of the Philadelphia corridor, which is the only part, um, you know, the only corridor um, that Hamas can connect to the outside world that is not under control of Israel. So its attitude towards Palestine can actually affect the battlefield.
2: Okay, but talking about the U.S. support, um, Netanyahu says Israel is on the same page with the U.S. on its plan for Rafah. But according to Jake Sullivan, Biden has yet to be briefed on this matter. And he also said uh, they do not believe a major military operation should proceed in Rafah unless there's a clear and executable plan to protect civilians. H- how would you interpret this apparent disconnect?
1: Well, this is interesting, and I think the biggest problem is that Washington lacks a coherent policy. You see that on the one hand, it always says it doesn't want to see major military operation in Rafa. It doesn't want to see a humanitarian crisis. But on the other hand, it has settled an Algerian proposal at the United Nations Security Council that called for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. And I don't think it is possible to launch a major military operation in Rafa, with an effective plan to protect civilians. I mean, how are you going to protect the civilians, right? It knows that they can't. So why doesn't it just say we disagree with a major military operation in Gaza? So I think in this, uh, by delivering this kind of speech, um, in fact, the um, United States tries to indicate that Israel could proceed in Gaza as long as there is a plan to protect civilians. And my States, by saying so, is trying to, leave some kind of like leeway for for israel so it has you know prepared more space of actions for israel so this kind of actions and of course have actually made um, israel even more fearless in the end
2: hmm. um, so what what do you think we can expect from the upcoming negotiations in Qatar and egypt and what will be the biggest uncertainties
1: um, so uh, according to uh, what i have uh, learned uh, recently, I think the following negotiations in Qatar and Egypt will mainly focus on the details uh, like how uh, it's going to be practiced. And the biggest challenge may be the selection of whom to release among the hostages. Uh, and I think another challenge may be that Israel wants to make sure that Hamas will not take the advantage of this ceasefire to further prepare itself for the war.
2: We've been talking to Professor Zhang Chuchu, Associate Professor and Deputy Director at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Fudan University. Coming up, data from China's Ministry of Commerce shows that China experienced a rise in newly funded foreign companies in January. And new analysis shows China has biggest diplomatic footprint in the world, just ahead of the U.S. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today, I’m Zhaang. Data from China's Ministry of Commerce shows that China experienced a rise in newly funded foreign companies in January. According to the data, more than 4,500 foreign enterprises set up shop during this period, a 74% increase compared to the previous year. The actual use of foreign capital in China was valued at 120 billion yuan, down about 11% on a yearly basis, but up 20% on a monthly basis. High-tech manufacturing accounted for 35% of the total foreign capital. Countries such as France, Switzerland, Germany, Australia, and Singapore saw a significant rise in value as foreign capital sources. For more on this and Chinese economy, our Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation.
4: So, Dr. Zhou, we are seeing that China has experienced the rise in newly funded foreign companies in January, and more than 4,500 foreign enterprises were set up in the month. So, how do you explain it, and why do you think China is attractive to foreign investment? Actually, in my
5: understanding, that when our company wants to invest in somewhere, it's a uh longer appearance uh, uh, time of uh, decision compared with the trade because they have to look at whether the uh, environment is stable is uh, you know the Um, less taxes and also a lot of consumers. So if they found that the destination market is attractive, they were trying to make the decision. I mean, after one year of uh, COVID policy change, a lot of uh, companies trying to expand or enlarge their investment in some other countries. China is one of their very important choices. And that is, uh, you know, after uh, some preparation, they decided to expand their investment in China in different areas, including manufacturing and also agriculture even.
4: And among various sectors, high-tech manufacturing accounted for 35% of the total foreign capital attracted. So why high-tech manufacturing investments showing such a significant gains, And what's China's role in the global high-tech manufacturing sectors?
5: First of all, I think that uh, high technology is areas which has uh, a little bit of higher profits margins for companies so they they may attracted by this uh, higher margin of profits and the second is that i i think that you know uh, every year chinese government is trying to put some policies to encourage the development of the high tech uh, sectors and trying to give them better you know, environment policies and also help them to to come here. And the third, I, I believe that, uh, you know, the openness of China's market is also very attractive. We see that China has a very uh, large Market And the integration of China's domestic market is uh, attracting so many uh, companies to these areas. And the Chinese consumers are also one of very important elements. They want to try to consume or buy the high-tech products together. I believe that is the reasons that we can uh, observe for the attractiveness to this Mm -hmm. high-tech FDI. Mm -hmm.
4: And we found that in January countries such as uh, France, Switzerland, Germany and Singapore have increased their investment here in China, so how do you explain that?
5: Yeah, I think that their distribution of the investors are having uh, some relations with uh, relation between the countries. We know uh, the countries you have just mentioned, they are the countries that has a, a stable and also good relation with China. I, I, I mean that for the multinational companies, they can decide where they want to go. They have to look at uh, for maybe longer term of uh, environment for the relation between the governments. So Singapore and uh, they are... Uh, one of our major investors, and France, we just uh, experienced uh, the you know 60 years of uh, uh, foreign relations. I think both countries are trying to strengthen the cooperation between us. So we have so many uh, you know companies want to to dig the China's uh, potential market, and some of them are really successful, like some of the companies from France, uh, Airbus. They are starting to expand their investment in China to meet the very huge. Demand of Chinese, uh, you know, the the demand for the flights for the airplanes.
4: And we've just talked about China's attraction for FDI. So, what's the outlook of China's outbound investment this year, Dr. Zhou? Many Chinese enterprises plan for going overseas or overseas expansion. So, what do you make of that? And what sectors are they focused in? Actually it's
5: a, it's a sequence of the development. When the company is becoming bigger and stronger, they are able to do some investment, not only limited in their, in their home country, they try to find some better places. And the second is, I, I, I think that Chinese companies is trying to address the challenge of the global supply chain. They're unstable. Global supply chain has made it a little bit more, you know, challenge for the company to continue with their expansion. And third, I think that many Chinese companies are able to try to get a better understanding about the local consumer and also their demands in other countries. And some of them are trying to use resources in other countries. So all of this, uh, you know, combined to make it a little bit more uh, push for Chinese companies to go out.
4: Mm -hmm. And in the year 2023, China made and sold 30 million cars, exporting more than 4 million of them as the world's largest auto exporter so what factors have contributed to it and what makes china's ev industry so competitive especially on the global market
5: I think that Chinese government is really curious about the EV development. Well, on the other hand, the private sectors are really trying to innovate in the in these areas. So if you compare it with the EVs, with the traditional cars, you can see there are so many Chinese brands are, you know, emerging. Maybe they are not emerging from uh, the traditional cars making, but uh, trying to make some more, uh, you know, kind of innovation to do with uh, EVs. And the second reason is that China has a very strong and uh, uh, I mean, the complete supply chains to support the EV makings. Well, we are also trying to improve the mutual understanding about the, you know, the, the tariffs, uh, uh, the market access and also to establish the better management systems between the governments. So this uh, several reasons are really important for China to develop to our, you know, a strong supply of the EVs. And that is definitely what other countries want to have because mm-hmm. the consumers are there can benefit from the, the you know the lower price and the better quality
4: Mm -hmm. And Dr. Zhou, so what do you think is the outlook for China's foreign trade this year? Because last year we've seen a standout area when it comes to China's foreign trade is that the total export value of China's tech-intensive green trails, namely the solar panels, the lithium batteries, and the EVs jumped a lot. So will this trend continue for this year? And what does it say about China's positioning in the global green tech market?
5: I think that for the quality of the trade, it is still improving. That is uh, you know, the the result by the cooperation between different countries, and also you know the markets is playing a very important role. Like for the trade, I I think that we can distinguish with uh, export and the import. For the export, there are still are uh, increasing trends for the recovery of the uh, the world economy. Well, for the import, China is trying to import more things, more diversified things from so many other countries. I think that both factors are. Uh, Good factors to uh, the foreign trade this year, but there are still some challenges like the unstable inst- uh, the supply chain uh, in the world, and also some of the difficulties on the global the trade rules and other governance issues.
4: Mm-hmm. And what do you expect for China's monetary and fiscal policy this year to support the country's economy?
5: I think the government is trying to put more strength to support the you know the better expectation of the market with a, a stronger maybe. A little bit more stronger policies compared with the last year.
4: Mm. And China's central bank has recently cut its benchmark mortgage reference rate by 25 basis points. So what does it mean for not only the real estate markets, but also when it comes to the economic confidence? The
5: market is getting the signal that uh, the government is trying to uh, give a better support to the, you know, not only the real estate, but also the market recovery. I think that consumers can have a better confidence in this regard. And it is not only for the consumption, but also, you know, a lot of things related to the real economy, like the manufacturing, they can also benefit by this kind of, uh, you know, uh, policies and measurements.
2: That's Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. New analysis indicates that China is the world's largest diplomatic power with a wider presence across the globe than the United States. The 2024 Global Diplomacy Index of the Lowy Institute ranks 66 countries and territories by the number of worldwide diplomatic postings they maintain. China comes in first with 274 posts, closely followed by the U.S. with 271. In the meantime, the report finds Turkey and India have added the most posts to their diplomatic networks in recent years. Joining us now in the studio is my colleague, Ding Hoon. Thanks for joining us. Hey Zhao Ying. So according to the director of the Lowy Institute's Public Opinion and Foreign Policy Program, many governments continue to invest in, in diplomacy to protect power and achieve their interests. Uh, and in terms of China and the US, he suggests their ongoing rivalry is reflected in the dominance in the 2024 rankings. What is your take on this?
6: Now, first of all, this is not the first time that China ranks the top in this regard. China overtook the United States for the first time in 2019 by a margin of three. Uh, this gap widened further to eight in the 2021 ranking, but narrowed again this past year as Beijing's posts dropped by one and Washington's rose by four. So overall, I would say the U.S. and China are on par with each other in this regard. And then I think the outreach of the outreach of diplomatic postings is, of course, one index to measure diplomatic power. On the other hand, though, it should not really be the only index because, for example, the footprints of foreign ministers can be another indicator. And apart from the things that can be measured in numbers, um, some, aspects, some aspects of diplomatic power cannot be measured stati- statistically. So I think overall it's pretty difficult for uh for you and me to say here that oh China is really the world's number 1 diplomatic power. I think in China's case um the situation we're talking about here is largely a reflection of China's global economic interests which has been expanded by the country's overseas investments the Belt and Road Initiative and also China is the biggest trading partner for more than 120 countries and territories. I think China, any decision about whether or not China will open a new diplomatic posting anywhere across the world is really primarily based on its own calculation of its own economic and national interests rather than any intention to, say, compete with the United States. Also, we need to shift our attention away from China a little bit, because like you said earlier, some middle powers like Turkey and India are expanding their diplomatic outreach very, very uh, rapidly.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you that sometimes statistics may not tell the full picture, but um, it still matters, right? And according to the report, China has a larger diplomatic footprint than the U.S. in Africa, East Asia, the Pacific Island countries, and Central Asia. Uh, But on the other hand, the United States still leads China diplomatically in Europe, North and Central America, and South Asia as well. And both countries have an equal number of posts in, um, in the Middle East and South America. So what is your reading of the picture here?
6: Well, I think this is largely in line with the bigger picture reality. Uh, diplomacy with Africa is something China has been emphasizing for really decades. Since the 1990s, uh, the first overseas trip by China's foreign minister has been to Africa. This is a generational long, you know, practice that has been really lasting for generations. By comparison, arguably for a long time, Africa had been at the least important end of Washington's global diplomacy. Now, of course, Washington is trying to catch up in this area. In terms of the Pacific Islands, this is also a region in which that the U.S. has long neglected, and now it is moving to shore up its diplomatic presence, also because of China. In Central Asia, the U.S. presence has never been very strong, which now has been further weakened by its uh, chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan a couple of years ago. Uh, In terms of East Asia, I guess, this was largely because of China's close ties with Southeast Asia in general, actually, ASEAN has, in most recent years, really, you know, overtaken America and the European Union countries as China's biggest trading partner. Uh, then the U.S. leading in Europe and Central America is also no surprising because, for example, some countries in Central America are still yet to switch their diplomatic ties, their official diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing. In terms of the Middle East and South uh, South America, these are regions where traditionally the United States has had a strong presence, but China's interests, especially China's economic interests in these regions, have also been rising. Uh, for example, China's trade with the Middle East uh, is already far above the, the the level of the U.S. trade with the Middle East. But I don't necessarily view China and the United States as rivalries in those regions because Beijing and Washington actually have some shared interests.
2: Well, in December, China held a Central Conference on Work Relating to Foreign Affairs, And in that meeting, President Xi Jinping said China has become a responsible major country with enhanced international influence, stronger capacity to steer new endeavors, and greater moral appeal. What kind of new requirements for China do you think um, the status of a responsible major country entails?
6: Now, first of all, um, China has a peaceful mind on international politics It never interferes in other countries' uh, internal affairs. These are the good practices and some of the good traditions in China's foreign policy. Now, as China becomes a major power, it requires China to continue with those legacies. In the meantime, I think it would also require China to better say represent the genuine sense of justice and fairness in international politics meaning when there is a regional conflict for example china needs to remain neutral and impartial while actively engaging in diplomatic efforts these are the policies that china has really adhered to either in the case of the war in ukraine or the, the gaza crisis now frankly speaking when we talk about why it is china not the united states that was able to uh, mediate this uh, saudi arabia iran rapprochement last year i think uh, really a main reason is because china has uh, enjoys a very cordial relations with both sides right also uh, this is something people tend to neglect but against the backdrop of the ongoing crisis at the Red Sea, many cargo ships are using their signals to indicate that they have links to China in an effort to avoid Houthi attacks in the, in the waterway. Uh, that, that, I guess that is also a reflection of this very fact that China is one of the few major powers from the outside that don't have an enemy in the Middle East. In the meantime, despite its major country status, China still sees itself as a member of the global south, so there is a real Chinese commitment to, say, prosperity, unity, and development in the global south, as we can see from China's role in terms of helping achieving this historic expansion of the BRICS last year.
2: Yeah, and very briefly, we know that China's efforts in broadening its diplomatic network has met with skepticism in the West. And some would say that um, this so-called decline of China, they argue that China's own challenges means that China will never rise to surpass Western power. How do you look at this?
6: Well, no matter how the West thinks about China, China has a stable and predictable foreign policy decision-making mechanism with the United States and the European countries, as well as some other Western countries elsewhere, China always wants to develop a stable and a workable relationship, a nice relationship. This principle has really remained unchanged for a long, long time. For example, the war in Ukraine may have somewhat changed how the Europeans see China, but by no means the other way around. Nothing has really changed in terms of how China views its relationship with the EU countries. So in many aspects, China is a source of stability in the world today.
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ding Hung, And this is World Today. We'll be back. South Korean doctors have staged fresh protests against the government's plan to recruit more medical students. The dispute centers on the recent announcement that universities will admit 2,000 more medical students next year. The government says it aims to address a shortage of medical personnel given the country's fast aging population. Many doctors fear that the schools won't be able to handle so many new students, and the funding is more urgently needed to raise medical fees. Kim tai woo is the emergency committee chief of the Korean Medical Association.
0: This time, we
3: Our goal is to make the government realize it
6: is a wrong policy and urge them to start the dialogue from the beginning.
2: The government has set Thursday as a deadline for trainee doctors to return to work or face consequences. For more, we're now joined by Dr. Rong Ying, Senior Research Fellow at China Institute of International Studies. So, Dr. Rong, can you explain the main reasons behind the doctor's strike in South Korea?
0: Well, I think the main reason is clear, as you rightly said, it is about dispute uh, between doctors. Remember the, the um junior doctors actually were talking about, and the government uh, of South Korea on the way or on the need to raise the uh, new sort of uh, uh, enrollment of doctors in the I mean since two thousand and twenty five to address the problem. Or challenges arising, uh, the shortages or other problems related to the healthcare system uh, of South Korea uh, as a result of aging population. So, in short, is I think the the pro the, the dispute between the uh, junior doctors at public hospitals and the government department uh, concern is how to find a way to address this uh I, I, I and this is of course had a very complicated uh so that and also very much i think uh, uh, emotional uh, to some extent uh in terms of the uh, and the serious issues uh because touch upon the day to day life and even the health uh, of uh, average uh uh i mean people so it becomes a national issue the last thing is it is also because the elections, the, the uh, parliamentary elections are around the corner. So it may become a political issue uh, bringing uh, uh, a complicated, I think, the process.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, how severe is the impact of the strike on the country's health care system?
0: I think it's been uh, very severely or gravely uh, uh, affect the uh, health care system uh, in South Korea. Remember that, I mean, those, doctors, junior doctors uh, or trainees, uh, interns, we're uh, we are talking about 80, I mean, uh, around 9,000 uh, of them, 9,000, 9, they have uh, submitted their radicalization. And that takes up almost, I think, uh, uh, over not 80% of the uh, physicians. So it's a huge number. And also, I think they have received a lot of sympathy and the support of a senior uh, uh, I mean, doctors or senior physicians. So uh, already reports, we have reports that uh, appointments have been canceled, the uh, sur- I mean, surgeries have been postponed, and the uh, very fact that the government cons- uh, department concerned has responded very uh, harshly. Uh, threatening that they may start, uh, I mean, use the legal or, uh, means and they may also, I think, revoke these doctors' uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, permissions and so on. And, so on. and these, these things also I could, uh, I mean, complicate or, or worsen the situation.
2: Mm-hmm. But has the government been exploring any uh, potential solutions to address this ongoing dispute with the doctors?
0: I think that is a major sort of uh, uh, concerns or frustration expressed by these junior doctors. They said that the decision has been made uh, uh, first and foremost without, without proper consultations and talks with uh, uh, those uh, doctors. And most importantly, I think they feel that this is not hiking the numbers or increase the numbers, uh, they recruit the new number, or the not uh, address or solve the problems facing the healthcare system in um, South Korea. Thirdly, I think these young physicians, young doctors, they have serious concerns about themselves. They feel that they have been overworked, underpaid, and they are concerned, their frustration, their problem has been unheard. So... Mm-hmm. And the last thing is, of course, related to that they, they believe that the system, the Medicare, the, the I mean, the school system, the training the medical school system, will not be able to meet uh, the the sort the, the, the demand for training so many. A uh, new student, new medical student in such a short time. Mm.
2: But do you see any parallels between uh, the current doctors' strike in South Korea and similar healthcare labor disputes on um, perhaps in other countries?
0: Yeah, I think uh, you, certainly one can feel a lot of similarities uh, in, related to this incident. Uh, well, a government department or a government, for some reasons, or even out of genuine reasons, to address an issue, long standing issue. Uh, They want to uh, push for some reforms or some steps or measures to address problems. But by doing so, either they have not properly uh, consulted with the the stakeholders or the uh, sort of interest group, or I think uh, whatever they have done, whatever the case, they are going to affect their interests. So cause and deadlock and the big problems become more complicated.
2: Well, thank you, Dr. Wang, Ying, Senior Research Fellow at China Institute of International Studies. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussion, you can follow us on X at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Yang. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.